0: Alright guys, this podcast is brought to you by Caffeine Gum Australia, the number one caffeine supplement in the world. So I first came across Caffeine Chewing Gum when I was playing for the Melbourne Rising in the 2015 National Rugby Championship. Um, Those of you who are older than 30 will remember the National Rugby Championship. And what happened was we had a Thursday night game. In manly so um, because of the way the whole competition worked we didn't leave till Thursday morning at about 6 a.m. Melbourne time so by the time we got there hung out all day we've gone to the ground I was absolutely exhausted the strength and conditioning coach was walking around handing out chewing gum i am gone that's interesting he's handing out chewing gum before a rugby game I asked him what it was he said look try it and tell me what you think so I had one and within a minute, I went from being exhausted to being alert and, and well, basically, I went to being fully caffeinated and ready to go. Uh, it was probably the only good game I played that year, to be honest. But it's been something I've been in love with ever since. Uh, even though I don't play anymore, I still have it before every training session. Uh, it comes in three great flavors, in spearmint, arctic mint, and cinnamon. And with 100 milligrams of caffeine, it's got a little kick to it as well. Um, yeah, and the, I think the real benefit of it is is that it doesn't affect your stomach before you work out. So if you have coffee before you work out, it can have some stomach problems, but the, the caffeine gum absorbs through your mouth cavity, which means you, your caffeine is absorbing straight to the brain and not through your stomach, uh, which has got a whole heap of benefits for athletes and people who are in transport and that sort of stuff. Um, it's used by professional athletes all over the world. I just sent about 20 boxes to Japan yesterday. And a lot of sports teams are getting ready for their preseason training with it. So yeah, uh, if you're interested, try some today at www.caffeengumaustralia.com. And welcome back to this week's edition of the Wandering Bear Sports Podcast, the number one sports podcast in the world. Before I introduce today's very special guest, can I please ask that if you're enjoying the podcast or any of our podcasts, that you make sure you subscribe on whatever platform you listen on and also, can you please make sure you follow along on Instagram at Sports or on Facebook at Wandering Sports? Your support means the world to us. Today's very special guest, Mr. Pete Fairburn. So I first met Pete during my brief stint at the Melbourne Rebels in 2015 when he was the media manager. And we've kept in touch over the years and since I last saw him, he's been the head of communications for RUPA, uh, the Rugby Union Players Association. He also, in his spare time, is an adjudicator for the Guinness World Records Society. I think it's called Society, but it's definitely Guinness World Records. Uh, And he's currently the head of sport for Thrive, PR, and Communications, which is a big company doing a lot of great things in the media space. Um, With all the podcasts I do, there's an element of you know, self-fulfillment. And it's really just a fantastic excuse for me to sit down with people that I like uh, and that I'm interested in and, and just pick their brains about their area of expertise or, or to see what I can learn from them. And um, Pete, Pete's a specialist in the media field. Um, he's got some great insight into sports media and, and just media in general and how to get a career in this world. Um, which is a tough world and something I'm trying to break into. Um, it's been very enjoyable so far, but getting a little bit of guidance has been tremendous for Pete. Um, as well as that, we talked about some of the things that he thinks athletes can do better around promoting themselves through their social media channels. Um, what, what, a big bugbear of mine is is that in team sports in Australia and in particularly rugby, guys are a little hesitant to use uh, their social following for, for their own benefit, and you know, I, th- I think Conor McGregor is the, the perfect example of an athlete that you that has used his exposure to to make money away from the sport. And you know, whether, whether you're a Conor McGregor or you're uh, you know a super rugby guy that's you know just in it for a couple of years, that the the exposure that you can get and the the you know, the leg up that it can help you with for the next stage of your your career is something I believe more athletes need to really take advantage of. And and Pete gave some great insight into what uh, athletes and people can do better in that space. So, really enjoyable chat, Uh, he's a super good dude. Uh, I'll just give you a warning, there's a couple of little audio issues um, for a couple of seconds throughout the chat. Uh, stick with it. It's only for like a couple of seconds here and there. The rest of it's pretty good and there's some great stuff in there. Okay. So, without further ado, please enjoy this week's conversation with Mr. Pete Fairburn. Ladies and gentlemen. Hey buddy, I gotcha. How are you, mate? I'm very well, man. How are you? Man, I'm good. I'm good. Just give me one sec. I'll just make sure I'm recording so I don't miss this. You're right, mate. I haven't done that yet, but, uh, and we're good. Mate, how's life? How's the how's things? Where are you? What's mate, I'm on? just
1: pouring pour myself a, uh, a long neck Forex Gold. Should give you a hey, good can indication. I,
0: can I grab a beer and join you? Yeah, 100%. Give me one minute, I'll be right back. Here we are. Beautiful, mate. But I've been obsessed with Guinness for about six months now. No, no idea why. Um, but yeah, how are you, mate?
1: Mate, very good. Very good. On the, uh, well, the 4X Gold gives you the indication that uh, that I'm up in Queensland now, up in the sunny state.
0: So, what are you, what are you doing now?
1: Uh, so, I work for a company called Thrive PR. So, we're a, kind of a full service PR and, and communications agency. Um, so, we've got offices in Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, Auckland, about yeah. 70 staff or so. Um, and I'm head of support at Thrive. So, we do lots of different things. Sports just one thing that we do. Um, so I look after all that sports stuff.
0: So is it is it um, mostly public relations or like social media stuff or, or what what do Thrive actually do?
1: Uh, so so uh, Thrive so so public relations is how we started. So the, the company is about twenty one years old. Um, but our our content and social side of our business is growing rapidly. So that probably, um, I'm trying to think, I've been at Thrive nearly 18 months. Um, when I started, that was like three staff in the kind of content side of things. That's yeah. up to like 10 staff now, like that is growing massively. So um, PR is kind of the, the the genesis, I guess, of the business and where it started. Um, yeah. But so many, so many of our customers and new customers are going, oh hang on you can do our social media community management and all our um content production and all our design work and we want you to do this 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 um because when when you work with with big companies right and this is all stuff that i've been learning over the last 18 months because it's a different landscape for me but um you know when you work with big businesses and you have these kind of all agency calls where you might have a marketing agency, a creative agency, a media buying agency, a PR agency, a social agency, all being employed by the same business or engaged by the same business. And you're on these all these calls together and presenting on, on what you're doing and how it all aligns to an overarching strategy. When they've got the opportunity to kind of, um, I guess, utilize, with one of those agency partners to, to do more than one function, it makes a, a great deal of sense. Yeah, yeah. So do you
0: so just say do you work with athletes or do you work mostly with companies?
1: Predominantly with companies, yeah. So I mean we would work with athletes and I've I've talked to a, a few different athletes, not in rugby actually, but kind of more likely like individual athletes um, around the work that we could do for them, but but predominantly with companies or or um sporting competitions we could work with teams quite comfortably like that's that's i I think a really good opportunity in the market is to work with sporting teams and be able to actually um oversee their communication strategy uh, not just the public relations side of things but also their own channels and and that sort of thing um particularly in some of the niche sports the smaller sports where they don't have budget to have really experienced full-time comms professionals 12 months of the year, so they often hire quite young junior staff in those roles and, and pay them 60k um, to be a 12 month of the year you know, media manager and 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 you know, that's got a social element, it's got a content production element, etc. But those people often aren't involved or, or don't have the expertise or even necessarily the seniority within that, that organization to drive what the overarching comms strategy is. So like sit down with a head coach or a GM of football to use rugby as an example, and say, this is what our comms strategy needs to be. And this is how it's going to help us develop our commerciality and grow our membership and grow our attendance and, you know, activate you know the obligations we have with our, our corporate partners who who have got, you know, certain things that they're entitled to in a contract. A lot of teams don't have or a lot of a lot of businesses don't have people in those chairs who have the ability or, or the platform to actually contribute to that more broadly. But a lot of those teams don't need a media manager twelve months of the year either. Mm do you know what i mean like like that's the landscape we're in now like does a big bash team need a media manager for 12 months of the year or do they need someone to come in and and drive strategy for you know two months into competition
0: competition and then two weeks out and then bump out like do do most teams have full-time guys or are they starting to look at this this outside or outsourcing if you will
1: as far as I know, most still have full time. I think it's a gap in the market, um, but yeah. you've got to change a lot of um, a lot of habits, I guess. Um, and <laughs> as I could well tell you throughout my travels, not not all coaches want upstart media people who who want to you know, challenge them on things necessarily or, or want to kind of contribute to a broader thing um you know you, you've got coaches and, and again i'll use rugby as the example right because that's our, our common denominator and how we know each other but you've got coaches who want to be able to say to a media manager I, I'm, I'm not doing any pr or any media this preseason because we haven't achieved anything right um so i don't want to do any media and they don't necessarily want to be challenged on that they want to be able to say you know that's how we're going to go about things and that's what's happening um and and then you know the detriment to the business of a decision like that um you know it could be massive so
0: enormous enormous all would the thought
1: yeah huge um and you know so so that type of thing happens across lots of different sports and you need people who also understand the landscape so it's all well and good to you know to say oh I want to put up you know, my captain every Thursday at captain's run. I want to put him up for, for media because that just really works for me. And I'm going to media train the shit out of him so that he knows all the key messages and what to say and what not to say. And then they wonder why they don't get any coverage and why ticket attendances are down and why um, memberships are down because they're putting up the same person every week, saying the same thing, doing their job eventually, especially in the current media landscape, of, you know, Newspapers go, we're not going to cover that. Or or we, we're only going to give that a tiny little run. You know, that's not going to have a picture. That's not going to be, you know, well placed in the paper, whatever it might be. So it's an interesting space.
0: Yeah, Mate, I'm, I'm going to go all over the place. Like I kind of use these podcasts as one. I want to give people some information and like try and show young athletes, you know, that they need to know. But uh, an even bigger part of that is I, I want to learn things and kind of use this as a as a tool for me to learn as well so i'm going to be very selfish and pick your brain a lot on various different things but let's go back to when we first met so you were at the rebels for was it eight years all up no no it was about
1: eight years ago i started there so um how long was i there i think i was there for two full-time seasons um and kind of a, a year or so before that Around the club, um, helping out on match day, writing content for the website. Um, Big has to get me into to do some stuff. So I was working for at the time before I started the Rebels. I was working for a company called BetStar, which ended up getting bought out by Ladbrokes. So um, so I was their PR manager, uh, sports betting company down in Melbourne, um, which was really interesting work, but but probably wasn't my passion, and I probably wasn't uh, necessarily you know I wasn't someone who who had a racing background, for example. So I was up against it, in a sense. And I was doing some work for HASS on the side at Rebels. Um, and a kind of the perfect storm was that he said, mate, come and work for me full time. So so did that. So you and I met when you came down and played NRC. Um, 2015. Yeah. And
0: 2015.
1: And then I resigned straight after that NRC campaign. I finished up. And
0: then you went to work for Rupert? Yeah.
1: Was, was that right?
0: What were you doing then?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I was comms manager at Rupert, um, which was, um, you know, obviously producing content and, and running social channels and, and kind of overarching comms strategy, right? So, so issuing press releases and dealing with, um, you yeah, more incoming rather than, than trying to drive PR more incoming media requests and uh, media relations. So pretty important to develop good relationships with media um, so that, when something was happening that that had a flow and effect, you know, for the Players Association. Firstly, that they wanted to actually pick up the phone and speak to you and understand things like a standard player contract or, or understand the code of conduct, um, understand the collective bargaining agreement so that when they're writing, they're informed. So it, was, it wasn't necessarily huge amounts of on the record, um, you know, press conferences or or press releases. Like there there was some of that type of stuff, but there was a lot of ensuring that the media were informed and understood the frameworks of of an Australian rugby player's um, situation. And then in my time at Rupert, over time, as well, started taking on a bigger role in the the kind of commercial side of the business as well. So managing uh, some of the commercial partnerships and bringing new ones in, and um, and and some of the major events we did, like the the Rupa Player Induction Camp and the the Rupert Awards, which was a pretty big function, which obviously um, has now been scaled back because of COVID, but taking on more of a big role there because there's an organisation that's funded by the players, um, you know, pretty important to try and find alternate revenue streams to to fund the work you're doing and to to continue to kind of improve and enhance the
0: offerings for the players. So just just for someone like me, who's interested in the media world, did you how did you go about getting into the into the actual world? Did you go to uni to do journalism or was it just something you learned along the way and just picked up skills as you went? How did you actually attack it?
1: Yeah, so I, I reckon I would have known by about age 10, 11 that I wanted to work in in sports media. Um, so I grew up as a sports mad kid, moved around, lots of kids. Dad's a school principal. Um, So born in Geelong, lived in Perth, lived in country Queensland, um, and then ended up lobbying in New Zealand at Christchurch, age 14, because the old man got a job there. And um, pretty consistently from an early age, was obsessed with football, obsessed with cricket, grew a real passion for English football as well, and and always wanted to be a sports journo. Um, So I studied that at university in Christchurch, studied kind of mass communication and and media, um, always enjoyed writing always enjoyed presenting and mc work and um yeah had had stuff published in the country paper in warwick and queensland as a you know 10 year old and did sports you? section yeah you know just writing about local you know soccer rep teams i was in or, or whatever it okay. was um and, and did kind of uh you know presenting an mc type stuff at school um and, and, and so studied studied comms at, at uni in christchurch got, got my degree um and then was kind of managing bars and and mucking around a bit and and good bunch of mates and living in new zealand mum and dad were back in oz just having a good time at about age kind of i guess uh 22 23 went right you know i've got this degree i want to work in in the media um probably as a journalist and probably in afl football so i'm going to move to melbourne and um you know, was lucky enough to spend a few months living with with uh, my grandfather who passed away a few years ago so that was pretty cool as a young bloke um and got to melbourne and and you know didn't didn't like this concept or this idea that if i wanted to be a journalist i would have to go and live in ballarat or Warrnambool or wangaratta and go and live somewhere really small and do the local community beat and move away from all my mates and um i guess so
0: was that the was that the career path at the time? Is that how it was seen?
1: That, that's probably how I saw it. Um, you know, whether it was from a TV or a radio journalism perspective, that that you know you'd get, you know, try and get a job with a local paper or a local TV you know, station, and 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 do your you know earn your wings and, and and a couple of years away living in the bush, that type of thing. You know, I had a good mate in New Zealand who was doing kind of commercial breakfast radio presenting and he'd done that and gone and lived in in Blenheim in New Zealand, you know, left Christchurch and sounded like a a pretty hard slog as a young bloke, you know, kind of pursuing your career and I had a good bunch of mates in Melbourne, a lot of Kiwi mates I knew who'd moved over and we're having a pretty good time, you know, on the weekends and and enjoying ourselves. I didn't really want to leave any of that so um, I kept riding, and I kind of—I um, was working in hospitality. I was working at a Gordon Ramsay restaurant, and actually ended up um, getting a, a one day a week volunteer internship, or I think maybe even two days um, at the company that I work for now, Thrive PR, um, back in 2009 or 10. Um, and started going in there a couple of days a week and learning about PR. And this is kind of when social media was just uh, going off as well. So I started doing a bit of social media for Gordon Ramsay Group Australia and learning about about that. um, And Thrive offered me a full-time job. Um, I was working in, you know they had some good sport clients at the time. So we're working with Callaway Golf. We're doing stuff with Nintendo around the Australian Open, Wolf Blast Wines around um, Cricket Australia stuff with the AFL Players Association and, and the the managing director said, nah, just come in and, and work here, work here full time. And that's kind of how I started. And from there worked for a, uh, a former footy player, AFL player down in Melbourne, did some PR for him. Uh, he had an events business for kind of 12, 18 months. From there went to Betstar and um, 2011 the Melbourne Rebels came in the comp. As I say, I had a lot of Kiwi mates in Melbourne and um, I developed a, a liking for rugby, I guess. Having lived in, in New Zealand for, for eight years, I liked it enough that when the Rebels came in, I went, yeah, this is pretty cool, let's get behind them and let's start going to games. And And I was still very much learning the game. Um, so I started doing that and, and um, yeah, started, you know, from there, you, you, you grow, you, you, you know, you start to genuinely start following a team. So you're, you're on the website and reading the team news and things like that, and saw something on the website about, you know, we want some people to help out. We need some media people for match day. So I went out had a coffee with Adam Fryer. I'd never met him at the time. Um, he'd just retired basically and, um, and taken on the media role there. Um, yeah, I, might, I might've even, I'm trying to think, I might've even, done some stuff with the guy who was there before Hass, just kind of helping out on match day writing a few match reports things like that and um and as i say that kind of was happening on the side while i was working full-time in media and comms anyway um most of the most of the people they had helping out were more kind of uni students and things like that and you had myself a couple of years older and working in the field and the opportunity came up to to work full time at the rebels and and grabbed it with both hands. So we will definitely
0: talk about the rebels because I want to, I'm very interested to see what your take on it was looking back, but, but in terms of the actual media world and acquiring all the skills that you need for content creation, social media strategy, you know, social media in general, all that different kind of stuff. Was that something that you learned at uni or was it something that you learned as you went? Definitely something. And how did you learn it? Because there's, there's a lot that goes into it. I, I'm starting to try and learn it myself. And I I guess I'm keen to know how you attacked it because to me, it just seems like a lot of stuff.
1: Yeah. And, and I kind of uh, view myself as a bit of an old school publicist in the sense that I'm pretty ordinary at video editing. Um, You know, I I can do the basic stuff to get by, but when it comes to anything creative, that's not my jam. Um, I'm, you know, social media, I I absolutely understand and, and value the importance um of social media for you know it, let, let's use um the rebels as an example for a sporting club you know in terms of growing your audience in terms of engaging and communicating with them i absolutely get how important it is and, and why you need to do it well but i'm not passionate about social media so i don't you know um and, and i don't do any of it in my current role but you know when i was working at Ruper at the rebels i wasn't sitting there going you yeah, know, i'm going to come up with the best strategy and absolutely smash it and, and grow engagement and, and this and that like yeah I was I was challenging myself I wanted to do well I wanted to grow things but it was also you know for me it was more that social media was the platform to showcase really good writing for example so I'm passionate about writing love writing love writing a good yarn um I've written I like to think some good ones I've also written some shockers but I like to go back and, and read a yarn and go yeah that's pretty cool that I've written that and if 30 people read it or if you know 3000 people read it if if they walk away going that's a really good yarn you know that's the kind of thing that really gets me going yeah. um, so that was the skill that that I probably honed the most at uni was, was writing because so I did an arts degree you know yes majoring in, in media and and kind of um, learning about how the media works through that but in terms of an actual skill to develop it was writing a lot of essays and, and that sort of thing and um, I had one university lecturer in particular um, at who, who at Canterbury Uni in Christchurch this, this was a guy from um, He's, he's a massive uh, Oakland Oakland Aces fan, Oakland A's in the U.S. baseball. This guy, uh, Vernon Andrews, an incredible guy. He's written a lot of books about like African-American culture and sport. And he was just this huge, vivacious personality who was kind of like my mentor at uni and worked with me on my writing style and um know yeah, gave me a lot of feedback there so from there i, I was lucky I, I could always as you can tell i could always have a yarn uh, i always enjoyed getting up and speaking in front of people i always enjoyed writing uh, and i enjoy developing relationships with people so when it comes to media relations and journos i could see you know someone like a a Wayne Smith who who wrote about rugby for 30 years on the other side of the room and had no problem walking up and introducing myself as a young bloke and starting a a conversation with him. And and those relationships were probably the most important thing, uh, especially when I was working in rugby.
0: Something I've noticed, and it's like very, very early on for me is that relationships, networking, connections is actually really, really critical. Was that, has that been your experience, maybe not just in rugby, but in the, in the, the media world? Am I, am I looking at that the right way? Because to, to me, uh, the, the best PR that I've had is from people recommending me or, you know, getting to know me. Did, am I on the right track there? Is, is that how you've seen it?
1: A 100%. So if I go back to when I started that, that internship at, at Thrive PR, from that day, I've had, you know, in the last 11, eleven, twelve years, I think I've had five full-time jobs. I have known somebody at each of those companies for that job. So, um, I, I I haven't interviewed for a job without knowing anyone, um, you know, to to be in any of those positions. They're all, you know, when I left the Rebels, I had a call from Rupert within a week saying, uh, you know, we'd love to have a conversation because we need a new comms manager. And that was with people at Ruper who i'd met a couple of times along the journey i mean aussie rugby is pretty small so they would have seen you know my name bob up on things but i didn't know these people well um but by i guess trying to hold myself to a good standard of who i am and how i engage with people and and that sort of thing it was you know guys like nick sterzak was the Ruper rep at the time who told the Ruper ceo Ruper ceo said oh your, your media guys just left the rebels do you you know do you reckon he'd be good at Rupert and Sturzy said yeah he's a good bloke he works hard you know he's a genuine guy um yeah so I I think that network and especially authenticity right like people will either like you or dislike you regardless as to how hard you try to to make them like you people make their own decisions but if you're true to who you are and 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 you're authentic and you're genuine and you tell people the truth and if you say you're going to do something you do it to
0: the best yeah. of your ability yeah. that's about all you can do mate um i'm glad you said that because um doing what i'm doing i've been getting a lot of people reaching out to me to give me advice and you know it's all well-meaning but it's everything from you should never swear to just be yourself and if that's who you are just just be you and that's the real way to go so hearing you say that kind of validates my own views there what was life like at the rebels when you started Talk talk to me about your role as a media manager day to day. Was it full on? Or was it like seasonal, or how, how did it work?
1: Yeah, it, it was full on. So full time role. Um, so has um, Adam Fry was the 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 kind of head of media, I guess, and and it was me and him, one and two, and. Um, yeah, that, that bloke is a guy who works harder than pretty much anyone I've ever met in my life, uh, doesn't say no to anything, determined to do the right thing by everyone, was openly admitted that he was learning on the, on the go himself because he was you know straight out of a playing career, but fortunately really understood the media space and what he wanted to do. Um, but it was full on. So I started the same time as as Tony McGann came in as, as head coach. So that was probably pretty good because it meant that, um, you know, Dumper wasn't necessarily comparing me to the person, you know, he would have had different media managers at the different clubs he's been at over the years, but he wasn't comparing me to someone who'd been in the chair before. And he was learning about the Melbourne media landscape the same time I was. He was developing relationships with the players the same time I was as well. So. Um, mate, it, it was it, it was a fantastic first job in sport. Oh, yeah, you know, that, that I think of as, as full time in sport compared to working at, in um, in sports betting. It was um, you know the opportunity to rock up and have thirty five athletes there every day who you develop relationships with, and you want to tell their stories. And all of a sudden, you start to develop this sense of I'm part of the team. Um, I played sport my whole life, not at any high, not at any good levels and and, still play 5 side football and things like that because I love sport and I love being part of a team and I take it pretty seriously. But from a talent perspective, it was never ever on the cards that I would ever pursue something like that. So this opportunity to suddenly be in an environment with guys who were doing this for a career, um, it felt really natural to me. It felt like an environment where um, I probably in my own head, build it up bigger than it was, that I was fighting for the same goal as them, that we were all fighting for a premiership, that we were all fighting to grow the club, that we were all fighting for for greater relevance. And and maybe if I did my job really well, I would be able to get us a bigger article in the Herald Sun or a bigger feature, um, you know, on Kick and Chase or, or, or whatever it might be. So from that point of view, it pushed me every day to try and get better at what I did um, and and try to you know, our goal very much for Hass and I was that the Rebels are going to be the best media um, you know, best media team in Super Rugby we're going to be better than the Reds, Brumbies, Tars and Force, because um, that's how you control the controllable so if we work harder take more risks um, you know, push ourselves there's no reason why we can't be that we might be the smallest club but you know we can be the best media team and that's what we set out to achieve how did you how
0: did you guys attack it in a city like Melbourne because when i was down there i I, you know you go out for beers with guys who are wallabies and nobody knows who they are nobody cares who they are it's very much an afl city and the rebels were pretty new at that time well they weren't new but they were kind of early on in their you know in their little run like how did you attack that because i would imagine you would have had to be quite aggressive with the media well, I wouldn't say aggressive. I would say that
1: you're pretty reliant on your own channels. So you could never assume that something was going to run in the paper or on the TV or anything like that. Um, I knew a lot of the AFL and, and the TV sports journals from from my job at BetStar. And because the Rebels shared facilities with Carlton Footy Club, you know, I'd rock up for work and there'd be, you know, five camera crews there ready for the Carlton press conference. And I knew all the journos. I'd say, oh, guys, you know, our, Rebels press conference isn't till ten thirty. You guys are early, and we'd have a laugh. But the reality was, none of them hung around to, to cover the rebels, right? So, um, and this was probably even pre the days when you'd record your press conference anyway and send it out to TV outlets. So we would have someone come from the Herald Sun, uh, you have know, to a press conference. And then someone from the age, possibly from AAP, Australia Associated Press, sometimes the age wouldn't send someone. So Mel Woods from AAP, she, you know, her, her copy would go in the age. So you had to manage those relationships really well. Um, fortunately, those journos were all lovely people and really good at their job and all cared about rugby and actually wanted the rebels to do well, um, which really helped. Um, but you had, you know, like you, you didn't have the luxury of, of doing what an afl club can do and say no one's available for media today or um you know putting up whichever player you wanted you had to work with them around which players they wanted to speak to guys like like scott higginbotham you know had to speak to media a lot because there weren't many recognized names or wallabies in the squad um so so you had to put up um you know those bigger names as much as possible and if you were putting up smaller names you had to to really tell the story to the journo's beforehand about why this is a good story, why you want to talk to this person, and, and how they can sell it. Um, you know, you'd work with picture editors around, um, you know, getting the best photo for the Herald Sun. So uh, DK came down, Radiki Samo came down for a year, um, and only played one or two Super Rugby games, but we got this awesome photo with the Herald Sun, where um, the photographer said, "I just want to capture the size of this guy. He's just." a huge guy and he's got a massive afro and i think he was like 37. Uh, she was like i don't care about the story i just want to get this great photo of him and i promise you when he gets selected to play for the rebels that'll get a good run in the paper if we can get the best photo of him and and you know lo and behold eventually he gets a run and and the photo runs and there's no article attached to it it's like a two-sentence byline underneath saying he's been named for his debut you know the rebels play The sharks whoever it was tomorrow night at 730 and that's it, but it's a huge photo because we've worked with the outlet to to get this really, really cool photo so. um, There was that side of things and then the other side of things as well was um, you know, and and with the journalists mate, it would literally be like. They'd say oh i've got the day off on on Tuesday, so we would reschedule our press conference, we wouldn't put the press conference on on a Tuesday because we'd be like no one will turn up so we're going to have to do this on a Wednesday or. OK, well, on Monday, we'll put two players up and you guys all agree that the second player we put up, none of you are going to use that audio for 24 hours. We'll embargo that for you guys so that you only have to come out here once for the week. Or, you know, like little things like that where we had to get creative. But we'd track the website clips. We'd, we'd put up and we did a lot of work in Victoria with engaging community rugby. So Schoolboy and Jewish Shield Rugby. and and and. Tapping into a, a pretty passionate um, community rugby scene, we'd put up like the team lists for the Jewish Shield on the weekend. We'd put those up on a Friday morning. They'd get five times as many views as when we named the Rebels team. Yeah, uh, right. So, so that was a pretty interesting um, side of things as well. Mate,
0: um, um what's the best brain dump I ever gave you? <laughs> <laughs> if you can, uh-huh. if you
1: can say it. <laughs> oh, look, and, and and let it be said that as much as, as Dumper gave me some good sprays across across the journey, you know, uh, we're very much on good terms. I've got a lot of respect for him and in general, right, like team, team loses every game. Coach gets sacked. Media manager doesn't. He's still got a job. So there's a fair degree of pressure in it for the coach. He used to love calling me Peter, um, which no one calls me Peter, he always called me Peter. Um, which was good there was just a bit of the power balance and i said to him once you know pretty early days made the mistake of saying oh mate i'm, I'm actually pete no one calls me peter uh i don't think he ever <laughs> called me pete ever again <laughs> there'd be the odd one where you'd kind of say to him uh, oh gee i thought so and so played well tonight and he'd be like what game were you watching you know that that bloke is lucky to have a contract um or you know like you'd you publish a you know an article where uh, and and you directly quote a player you know maybe a player's resigned or um or, or, or you know it's pre season they're talking about how excited the season come is and, and and dump it be on the phone and be like mate what is this that he you know what is this quote this quote is rubbish and I'm going mate that's what the player said he's going I don't care <laughs> so so mate there were bits of that um. And, and, and there's not any kind of one particular spray. He loved, he loved uh, th- that I had a tough sticker on one arm. So he used to call me Joshy Dugan. He thought that was pretty funny. Um, but mate, in, in general, uh, yeah, Dumper ruled the roost. And and so a head coach probably should, you know. Um, and, and there were times that you'd be kicking rocks and and thinking, you know, this bloke's just giving me a hard time, but ultimately it was a bit of a school of hard knocks and, uh, you know, being treated like that was probably in hindsight, a bit of a, you know, if someone's a bit hard on you and, and, and holds you accountable for what you're doing, probably shows they care and they actually like you and rate you. Um, and yeah. it's, it's pretty good development that, um, yeah, certainly the environment I work in now as an example, in a, a PR agency of, of 70 staff, you can't speak to, to people the way that not and, and not singling out Dump by any stretch, just the way people speak to but each other in sport. a 40 club. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You, you, you can't do that in this day and age. And I feel like when there are times when, you know, I think oh, I'm, I'm going to cop a spray here because, you know, I haven't done the best work or I've missed a deadline or, or you know, I haven't won a new business pitch or whatever it is, I'm ready for it. And, and, I'm, and I'd like to think that anytime I'm kind of ready for a spray professionally, which isn't very often, thankfully, I'm, uh, I'm pretty equipped to kind of take it on on the chin, rather than that kind of "well, is me" approach of of I'm untouchable and I've done nothing wrong. But my my favourite
0: dumper story. I think I can say the guy's name. It was uh Mr. Lapetti Tamani, the great man. So I think LT was about 126 kilos, and his skin folds were about 30. Like super athletic fit he had a six pack he, he was 126 kilo man with a six pack he went to tonga for a holiday for two weeks came back at 132 and his skin folds were about maybe 45 and to, to put that into context when i was in melbourne my, my skin folds were about 100. so yeah super athletic super lean dumper and, and he put on so he put on weight and a lot of lean muscle as well and dumper tore, tore strips off him in front of everyone. <laughs> you know and it was you know he um met met copped quite a hard time for him at the start but it was to see what he was made of and and i think that was the making of met so i, I can see how that approach would you know would work for people it was the old school way
1: mate and uh, do you know what like it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you're going to get sprayed and as a result you're going to go and play for the wallabies or in my case as a result you're going to go and be the best media manager in the country like it, it's there's not an automatic flow on effect of that but it, but it builds character and provided it doesn't get personal or it doesn't you know it's not a spray for the sake of of you know trying to right and 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 ultimately that's that's kind of um that's the balance right and yeah, no. It, it, Look, at the time you you sit there, sometimes you go, God, this isn't worth it. Why am I doing this? But um, I didn't help myself. I remember once speaking to him on the phone after a preseason game. I think we played the Reds up in maybe Cairns or Townsville. And um, I just couldn't help myself. I said something stupid. I was interviewing him on the phone after the game because I was writing the match report and, I, and he, he said, oh, I think we might have had a win and he said oh peter how how was your night peter uh did you enjoy that and i said mate it was fantastic i had you know i was watching the game on my laptop i had the uh, the afl on the tv behind me i had a beer and he was just like what are you talking about you know like you're working you know you might not just be here the club might not have the money to fly the media manager everywhere but what are you talking about? Why, why do you have the AFL on the TV behind you? Why do you have a beer? You're watching our game. You're part of our team. You, you know. And I'm thinking afterwards, yeah, it's, it's probably a pretty fair shout.
0: Mate, from your job in sport, what can athletes do better in terms of media? Because I, just just my opinion, I kind of look at rugby, and it's almost like guys don't make the most of the opportunity that they have in terms of getting the social media presence, in terms of getting media opportunities and getting their name out there, so that once they finish playing, they can jump into the next stage of their life a little bit easier. Like The only ones I can really think of that have done a good job is someone like Drew Mitchell, you know, who was very active on social media, who put his personality out there a lot. You know, I'm sure Quade Cooper, once he eventually retires, will be something similar. but. What's your take on that? What can what can athletes do to make the most of the opportunity opportunity they have at the moment?
1: Yeah, I think my big thing, and I was lucky to do some some work when I was at Rupert. Obviously, uh, mainly with the Aussie men's and women's sevens. I did stuff at the Rebels, and I was there. The Queensland Reds were always really open to me coming up and working with the, with their team. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's not as simple as as just posting a couple of training photos and then expecting to get a, you know, a free, a free car or, a, you know, kind of a, a sponsorship that, that, you know, kind of is going to give you $10,000 or, or whatever it is like, you need to have a constant presence you need to add value. Right. So, um, yeah, I used to do training with rebels players around the risks of social media and the ways that they could get in trouble, but I always, used to try and say, you know, social media is an opportunity for you. It's an opportunity for you to introduce yourself to the world, explain who you are, have an opinion on things. Um, You you know, know your boundaries and don't get yourself in trouble, but you can't just all of a sudden start posting sponsored content or, or stuff that you're getting paid to post and nothing else. You've got media departments who have access to hundreds of photos, whether it's training footage, whether it's game footage, share all those photos you know engage fans when people talk to you on to them um every year you get new training kit do a training kit giveaway give your stuff away that means the world to it to a kid who's following you online someone like Rhys hodge does it really really well um, he's always doing stuff like that um one of the things i always hated about athletes on social media was when you would see teammates commenting on each other's photos with all these in jokes and, and you, know, they'd say, you know, they'd write stuff and, and, and it'd be you know, funny words and code words and things that the general public didn't know and didn't understand. And all that does is it builds a bigger barrier between we're living in this world and you're just watching on from afar. So, um, you know, add, add, add value in terms of, uh, you know, I always used to say to players if you're watching another game of Super Rugby and something, you see something that really impresses you, comment on it um if you watch you know max gorn who's the the captain of the the melbourne demons in the afl he's a mad new zealand cricket fan because his family has kiwi heritage he tweets about new zealand cricket all the time and he tweets about the tour de france because he loves cycling tweet about other sports show what your interests are outside of, of of footy right um and it's not all about the follower numbers it's about the engagement level so whether you've got 500, 5,000, 50,000, 500,000 followers doesn't really make a difference unless those followers feel like they can relate to you and and that, that, you know, they exist in the same world and in the same space as you. I think
0: that's really, really important. Do you think people are becoming less resistant to it? Because I still kind of see rugby as, you know, it's very much a team game and it's not like you know, the American culture where all the NFL players have like their own YouTube channels and they're very active on social media. I still kind of see rugby as being a little old school where it's almost, you know, frowned upon to show your personality and to show yourself. I mean, that's certainly been my experience. Do you think that's changing a bit?
1: I think it's changing. I think um, in the same way that that players, not just, you know, someone who, who I know your mates with in, in Brandon Payanga ramosa him saying, I'm signing this deal with Montpellier because it is a great deal for me and my family. And I'm a young man and I'm I'm taking the deal because of, of the financial opportunity that it is. Yeah, you know, I think that's very indicative of rugby in general being willing to to grow up a bit and be part of the real world because you can't, you know, for every for every player who doesn't play overseas and and you know you've got a stephen moore who plays you know 17 years of professional rugby in in australia and then walks straight into a huge job um but he was a wallaby captain he's a super rugby games records holder that's not achievable or viable for 95 percent of super rugby players um you know they're, they're all obviously you know, rupert does an awesome job at, at at working with players to get them studying, to, to get them thinking about life after footy, but they've got to maximise their opportunities. So in the same way that a contractual decision to sign overseas, you know, Samu Karevi signing in Japan, or Ashur McMahon signing in Japan, um, you know, Brandon signing in France, I think players are starting to see that their own social media channels are also an opportunity for them um, to develop who they are and you know, to increase their earning capability, to increase their marketability and to bring people along for the ride. So I think a lot of the younger Wallaby guys are, are getting better at it. Um, you know, you see guys doing stuff online sometimes and you'd love to sit them down and, and, and steer them in, in directions a bit. But I think that, that concept of Aussies can't self-promote, I, I think we're moving beyond that, not just in rugby, but across most sports now. Um, yeah when when you when you click on instagram and you see someone who has been on a reality tv show and had 3 weeks of fame and they've got 300,000 followers on instagram and are making a full-time living from being an influencer and getting given free shit or getting paid to to spruik something if you're a full-time athlete who's actually contributing so much more genuinely to, to you know society and to people's enjoyment and what they do in life i think you see that and that gives you a bit of a, a sense of well why can't i take advantage of this and actually i'd be silly if i don't and, and i should back myself in so um look it, it's not that it'll never be as as overt in our culture as it is probably in places like the us but you know you look at, at premier league footballers, you look at um you know, AFL and NRL players here. Uh, yeah, the reality is you have to look after number one and you have to put yourself out there.
0: I, mate, I, I'm glad you said that. I couldn't agree more because to, to me, even if, even if you decide after you finish playing sport that you want to start a beer company, having that following of people who are engaged in your story is going to help your business. And whatever you do next, it's just going to be helpful. Tell me, you did a podcast every day for five months. Is, is that right? Yeah, how the, how the fuck did you do that?
1: um Yeah, it was mate. It was good fun. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So I did it last year during COVID. I came up with this idea that. Um, so I love sports media almost as much as I love sport. I read a shitload of news. Um, I read news about sports. I know nothing about to try and build my knowledge. I'm fascinated by the way. Different broadcast deals impact on those same publishers. You know how Nine Media, how the Sydney Morning Herald now reports on rugby union now that it's on Stan Sport, compared to say how the Daily Telegraph basically barely covers it since it's left Fox. These types of things fascinate me, um, and I follow I follow all sports like to a certain degree. Like I, I don't really want to sit down and watch U.S. sports as an example. I've never caught that bug. But I love some of the storylines within US sports, like there's some epic stuff going on there and some some really fascinating stuff to follow. So came up with this concept of a different uh, a different journal on the line with me, a different sports journal every morning, Monday to Friday, I'd get up at 5am, at which I do anyway. Scan the newspapers, find what I thought were five of the biggest stories making waves in the world of sport. Um, and, and get that journal on and talk about each story for two or three minutes and get it out and published by seven, 7.30, 15, 20 minute podcast that people could listen to on the way to work or they could chuck it on the Bluetooth speaker while they're in the shower or, you know, busy people who don't have the time to sit down and read all the newspapers, we've done it for you. Um, so I reckon I probably had up to 40 different journals get on and do that with me over over the, the kind of five months or so. I did it Monday to Friday. Um, some of them were journos who I knew really well, had great relationships with guys like Christy Doran and, and Nat Yohanidis and Julian De Stoop and, and some of these guys. Others were people I'd never met before um, and still haven't met in person. Um, so like guys it's,
0: like- Did you just reach out to them?
1: Yeah. And then people reached out to me because I really kind of focused on championing the journey as well, um, and their opinion and their insights. And, um, you know, so someone like Brad Walter at nrl.com who, who wrote for the Sydney morning Herald for years, like he's an insanely intelligent guy who provided fantastic insight. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I probably only got a couple of hundred people listening to this this morning, but they they're getting treated to, additional information that is not published on his platform and insight into the NRL. But if they're an NRL fan, they're walking away from this with something that very few people actually have. Um, yeah. You know, so, so that was awesome. It was it was easier as well because I, I kind of I started it um, not long after we moved up to Queensland and office, you know, my office wasn't open up here. So I was working from home. Uh, my young fella at the time was only a few months old, so even if he woke up, my wife could kind of take him into the bedroom and keep him quiet, uh, whereas now he's like, when he's up, he's you know, he's running down the stairs, he wants to play. It's a, it's a bit harder, but I could kind of do it unimpeded and uninterrupted. Um,
0: what, yeah. platform, what platforms did you put it out on?
1: Uh, so I just put it out on, on Apple podcasts and Spotify, um, and on YouTube as well. Facebook, um, created some pages there. Um, yeah, you know, basically, uh, and, and I'm sure you've, you've probably done this as well. You, you, you kind of rely on your mates yeah. who who have similar interests to you anyway, and, and are interested. Like my mum and dad would sit and watch it on their phone in, in bed in the morning that there was, you know, last year was their first year of retirement. So for, If it came out early enough that they weren't up, they'd sit there and watch it. My mum doesn't probably care about 90% of what I'm talking about from a sports point of view, but they just enjoyed watching me do something I was passionate about, so that was pretty cool.
0: Was it, so you, um, I guess I'm just, I guess I'm just asking, like, how do you think the podcast landscape's going? Do you you think that more media is gonna be consumed in the audio format? then maybe writing or video like what's going to be the predominant platform going forward in your opinion
1: well I, I was a late adopter to podcast um so toby duncan who i worked with at rupert like said to me and, and ross then the see i said to me three or four years ago why don't we do a rupert podcast and i was like so dismissive of it even though i'd always you know at the time i was you know i always did radio stuff when i worked in rugby you know kind of um people from sen or um or abc you know, i do bits of radio on the side so i believed in audio um but i was like a podcast uh lame No, nah, no way not into it um but i think the way that we consume media is however is easiest to us and the way we consume sport so whatever suits us best so Podcasts are great when you're driving or when you're out for a run, or if you're walking your kid and they're asleep in the pram and you're just walking along podcasts are fantastic. Um, I, I love reading the news. I, I find that that's, that's my, my most enjoyable way of consuming news, but it's not always practical. So if I can, I know I'm going to spend you know, minimum 60 minutes a day on my commute and if i can get the most out of that 60 minutes and maximize that time by watching video if i'm on the bus or, or listening to a podcast if i'm driving um then that's i feel like that's the smarter way for me to, to use content yeah. um i'm a bit robotic like that i'm like what's the most efficient way to do this but um yeah po- podcasts i think as long as people have got opinions podcasts, there's going to be more and more and more podcasts. And the challenge just becomes wading through the shit to find the ones that you like and the ones that, that resonate with you. Right. And everyone's podcasts or media consumption habits, are very different. I'm really loyal. So I, li- I like listening to the same podcasts every week. And if I miss a week, I'm like, Oh man, I, I hope I, I didn't miss you know, something really, really important because, because I've come to rely on these places as sources of information. Um, That's more from a news perspective, right? If I use your podcast as an example, I'm like, wow, Tim Metch is on, Laurie Weeks is on. Like, I've got to listen to that because I like those guys and I want to hear them tell their stories. And I know that, um, you know, when I was working at the Rebels, if I wrote a story about Mech, it would be like a 450-word story where I'd be trying to tell as much of his story as I could in 450 words but also having to tie into the key messages of the club and the context of the story, which might be that he's making his debut or he's back from injury or he's re-signed or whatever it is. So I don't have to get much of an opportunity to really tell his story. When I'm yeah. like, oh, I can actually listen to, to 50 minutes of Tim Etcher sitting down and telling his story. To me, that's a really compelling piece of content that I want to consume.
0: Yeah, okay. I guess I'm just trying to find out how, as a podcaster, you can cut through all the shit and- rise to the top yourself. Is it just a matter of just putting out good content, gradually building your following and then just help hoping that people keep listening is basically. I think
1: so. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert on the subject, far from it, but I think consistency is key. You know, if you usually, I know that my favorite podcast is one called the sounding board, which is hosted by Craig Hutchison, Damian Barrett. And that's generally out on a Monday, around about the time I get on the bus to come home from work on a Monday at about five thirty six o'clock. So yeah. when that doesn't come out at tomorrow, sure, like, oh, I'll have to find something else to listen to. So I think consistency is important. You know, your audience have come to expect something at a certain time and and, and the same with with the quality of it, right? So if you arrive unprepared for for a podcast, all it takes is probably... And, and again, like I said, podcasts every day for five months absolutely there would have been days when i you know my baby had been awake overnight so i haven't had as much sleep or i've gone through the papers that morning and gone oh, nothing's really grabbing me so of these five stories i'm breaking down two of them are a bit of a stretch or you know there were times where i have a guest who i hadn't had on before and i'd be like oh they're not really giving me what i want and you're worried because you're thinking people aren't going to come back to this podcast you're probably looking at me going mate I'd just did a podcast with Pete Fairbairn. and no one's coming back after this, but do you know what I mean? Like that, that consistency around quality around, around when you're delivering around, um, you know, making sure you got to look after your, your your loyal audience, I think first and foremost, you've got to keep your, your day ones happy, right?
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think that the way like one, it's an incredible marketing tool. The opportunities I've had, even just through starting this myself, have been, you know, it's made me realise that I wish I'd done it five, six years ago. Um, And, you know, purely from a selfish point of view, I want to talk to people like you. So if nobody else listens to this, I don't really care. (laughs) So that's that's kind of my attitude with it. Like, you know. I'm very lucky to be able to use this as an excuse to talk to people that I admire, that I like, and if people want to come along for the journey, then that's great. And if they don't, you know, that sucks, but it's fine. You know, let's talk about let's talk about a bit of rugby to finish. What is your take on the current state of Australian rugby? Are we improving? Um, have we gone backwards? Like, what's your take on it all?
1: Yeah, it's good. I've been been out of rugby long enough now that I can speak pretty freely. And and I guess the the other caveat to that is that I'm not as informed as I once was, right? So, you know, when I worked at Rupert, I had a pretty good handle on the lay of the land and what was going on. But um, I guess I, I've said it before. I think this was the pandemic Australian rugby had to have um, okay. because it forced the reset and it forced... Australian rugby to reconsider how to live within its means. Um, I think because I'm I'm a fan of all the different football codes to varying degrees, I always found rugby a really insular code that didn't understand and didn't necessarily try to understand its role in a broader sporting landscape, right? So rugby was, um, you know, there's there's the the phenomenal history of, of the Wallaby gold, right? And what that jersey means. And you know, they used to say that the, the the Australian cricket captain and the Wallabies captain and the Prime Minister were the three most important jobs in the country. And not necessarily in that, you know, that the, the order would w- would change, right? And, and you know, clearly, um, you know, the Wallabies captain hasn't been on on that level in over the last kind of ten or more years. So. There is this amazing history and, and tradition around Australian rugby, and we've got to cradle that. And we've got to, it's so special and it means so much to so many people. But a lot of those people have never really followed any of the other codes and never really genuinely absorbed the innovation which has allowed some of those other codes to continue to progress uh, while rugby remained fairly stagnant. Um, I'm, I'm a, I'm a five team believer. In Australian rugby, I, I you know, I, I, I have always been, and and not just because I worked at the Rebels, but because if you've got eighteen AFL teams and sixteen NRL teams and twelve A League teams and you know eight or nine or ten NBL teams, if you've only got three or four Super Rugby teams, the law of averages, for a start, says that you're going to struggle to to get recognised. I think you've got to have a national footprint, and I think we produce. Enough quality rugby players to comfortably fill thirty-five contracted players at five teams. If you look at the number of quality players overseas, right? That the challenge is developing a commercial framework where we can afford to keep our best players here. Um, I'm, I'm yeah, you know, again, possibly a conflict because he was my first CEO at the Rebels, but I, I think Rob Clark's a fantastic rugby administrator. So. When he came in as acting chief executive after after Raylene left, I, I thought he made some really good decisions around um, putting Australian rugby first and around uh, you know, standing our ground when it comes to New Zealand rugby. I think the aura of the All Blacks and the success they've had and the fact that it's the national game in New Zealand and the fact that they're a globally recognised brand has overshadowed the fact that they've got a far smaller population than us, and that they're incredibly reliant upon us for international and provincial competition in this part of the world. That um, you know, you only have to look at the fact that they don't want to play two rounds of of local derbies and Super Rugby. Yes, on the one hand, they say, "Oh, we're too good and we bash each other up," but also they've got they've got Mitre Ten Cup as well. So there's only so many times people want to watch the Highlanders play the Crusaders and then Dunedin play Canterbury. And, you know, there's a limit to that. So they need us. Um, and, and and I feel like Australian rugby is starting to stand its own ground a little bit and demonstrate that we understand you need us. Um, that being said, uh, you know, clearly Super Rugby Trans-Tasman this year demonstrated that there's a, a, a pretty big gap between the two countries at the moment. We haven't had the Bledisloe for a very 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 long time so from a, a high performance standpoint there's definitely still huge amounts of work that need to be done um i, I think the stand sport deal's been fantastic it's been phenomenal um, the the and, and the numbers that have been coming through of people watching wallaby's tests have been like unbelievable you know people talking people i I go into work and and people who aren't interested in rugby saying oh you would have had a good night last night because the wallabies were on you know like like that type of thing is is pretty pretty new um you know and 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 i feel like we have an opportunity to grow new supporters of the game and that's what we've we've really been lacking um the game itself is bloody complicated to people who haven't grown up around it or haven't immersed themselves in it so I was at the Wallabies France test up here um, with a couple of people who don't know a lot about rugby and couldn't really follow it and didn't understand why there were so many scrum resets and so many stoppages. That's a problem. Uh, That's only going to become a bigger problem with a generation who are used to watching what they want when they want it snackable content they don't want to sit around for three minutes while tmos are looking at 27 different angles or we're having our second scrum reset or whatever it might be so that that's a world rugby problem right that's not a a a rugby australia problem problem Uh, but we want to see um you know faster more you know more furious content Um, I, i think from a marketing point of view we've still got a bit of work to do here around building it up in the same way that um, that say the AFL or the NRL do and to, to really engaging content that that is directed at a younger audience. I think we've got to bring our original audience along for the ride a little bit and explain to them that things are going to change and and, and just trust ourselves that, that that we will be able to hang on to them. But I think there's some real green, green shoots. I think, um, you know, there's obviously this, really talented crux of young players coming through. Um, and while I've never subscribed to the theory that if the Wallabies win the, the Bledisloe or the World Cup, the fans will all come flocking back, at the same time, when you look and, and you see, yeah you know, Noah Lolisio and, and um, you know, Tanya Latupo and Tate McDermott and Tom Wright and Hunter Paisami and this young group of Wallabies with not a lot of caps to their name, it's pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, I agree. Do you feel like we're trending in the right direction? Because
1: I, I certainly do. Yeah, absolutely I do. For the first time in, in, in a long time. And I think that um, we're going to have to keep working bloody hard to keep trending in the right direction because what we need to remind ourselves is it might be the first time in a long time that we've been trending in the right direction, but a lot of these sports have been trending in the right direction for a long time. Like the AFL is on a constant upward curve of improvement. The NBL, you know, as a competition, I don't follow basketball particularly, but that competition, you know, the numbers it's putting up and the way it's growing is huge. Um, you know, women's sport, women's Big Bash, women's, uh, you know, the Matildas are, 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 you know, one of the most popular teams in the country. So, just because we're on an upward curve, the other sports are too. So, we need to we need to keep working hard to, to maintain that. Mate, I agree.
0: I agree. Mate, let's let's finish on. This question that I always ask everyone, um, often gives some very insightful answers. Sometimes it doesn't. What, would you, what advice would you give 18 year old Pete Fairbairn? <laughs> well,
1: probably ditch the, the ponytail and the cubic zirconia earring for a start. Um, Are
0: there any photos of that particular that area? Uh,
1: not too many, thankfully. Um, What advice would I give a young, eighteen-year-old people, mate? I I probably should have attempted to your point when you say you should have started a podcast five or six years ago. um, I probably should have had a a proper crack at at a few things a bit earlier. Um, And you know, I I think that um, I, I still have an ability to. To, to, to really kind of stress and, and turn things into to bigger things than they need to. It's something that I've gotten better at in a professional sense. But, um, you know, to, to kind of uh, don't sweat the small things a little bit more is definitely something that, that I'd say to an 18-year-old Pete Fairbairn, you know, if, you, if, if you're, you're true to what you want to do and, and you have a proper crack and you back yourself in and, and you're good to people along the journey, good things generally happen to good people.
0: Yeah. Hey, that's a great way to end it, mate. I uh, hopefully, the one day that Sydney opens up again, and we can have a beer at some stage, mate. In person,
1: mate, that'd be awesome. I've been uh, been really really enjoying what you do, and um, you know, kind of just you're out there having a crack, and, and you also post some of the best meme content uh, on the whole of Instagram, but um, <laughs> but no, mate, you're it. At- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's awesome. Mate. I've really, really enjoyed it. And I love the, um, you know, the variance of who you're speaking to, to go from speaking to a Michael Hooper one week to, um, you know, to, to someone like myself, another, you know, shows a real uh, you know, depth of, of understanding at your end about different stories that different people can tell um, and, and thoroughly enjoying watching on. And mate, you just seem to work bloody hard. You seem to always have something on the go. I'm trying, mate. I'm
0: trying. I don't know how well it's going, but I'm trying. So I really appreciate it, mate. I really appreciate it. Um, I'll let you know when this is out. Probably be a couple of weeks. Um, mate, I love it. Thank you so much.
1: Pleasure, my man. Absolute pleasure.
0: Great, great to see you. It's been too long.
1: It has. Look forward to uh, to a cold one, and especially if uh, it looks like Mitch is heading home, from what I can he's, see. Uh,
0: he's retired. He, he's been a bit quiet about what he's doing next, but... You know, all, all I all I heard was, "Oh yeah,
1: I'm done." So, oh, I'm looking forward to uh, to an opportunity to catch up with with guys like uh, yourself and Mitch and Laurie Weeks and some of those. All the good blokes are front rowers, aren't they? Uh, not all of them, but a lot of them. So, uh, so yeah, all be the cool. half
0: decent, all the half decent front rowers are. <laughs> <laughs> good um, stuff, man. Thank you, buddy. Have a good night, and we'll talk soon.
1: Good man. Catch you later.
0: See you, bud. Bye.